Winter storms are raging this week as ice and wind pound the planet and snow falls in unusual places. A new NOAA study grabs headlines, are some climate change effects already irreversible? And what's it like to study weather at 10,000 feet on top of a mountain? We'll go on a Rocky Mountain High and find out. Storms, stormy predictions, and storm peak. Tray tables up, please. You're going jet streaming with Minnesota Public Radio. What's your sad mistake? Welcome aboard, everybody. I'm Minnesota Public Radio Chief Meteorologist Paul Hutner. He is climate specialist and meteorologist Dr. Mark Seeley from the University of Minnesota. Hi, Mark. Hello, Paul. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you, too. We've got a lot of weather news to cover this week, Mark. Let's buzz through these as best we can. A huge ice storm is coating everything with ice in the south-central United States. Up to two inches of ice is snapping trees and power lines in Oklahoma, southern Missouri, northern Arkansas, and spreading east through Kentucky and the Ohio Valley. Warm air, temperatures in the 70s to the south of this system, it's overrunning the cold Arctic air that we've had in place. The result, a storm that is cutting power to approaching a million people, Mark, not a big surprise for us. This is pretty common in the climatological ice belt in winter, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think what was unusual here, Paul, is uh, the er- the area extent of this storm and the duration of this storm were a bit rare. It covered, uh, it cut a wide swath similar to the uh, ice storm that came across in late November, early December of 2006, and in fact followed similar to the trajectory of that storm, going all the way from Arkansas, Oklahoma, cutting up through the Midwest, and then going out through New England. And of course, it brought abundant precipitation. It's hard to fathom that some of these places in Missouri and southern Illinois were recording three to five inches of sleet and freezing rain. Now, that, that's, a, that's a huge mess, if you ask me. That is remarkable. And I know NOAA was even warning that some of their weather radio stations may go off the air because of icing on taking down some of the towers. So it's going to be a mess there. This will be in the news again for several days. A rare snowfall in another part of the earth, a blanket parts of Dubai and the United Arab Emirates along the Persian Gulf for only the second time in recorded history last weekend. In fact, snow is so rare there that according to locals, there is no word for snow in the local dialect. Snow had previously fallen in the area in December 2004. Mark, weather always seems to surprise us a little bit, doesn't it? It sure does. Uh, <laughs> This, uh, who knows, there may, this may be a signature of what they're going to experience over there in terms of more frequent uh, uh, cold episodes in the winter season that might bring them snow. They're going to have to invent a word for snow, Paul. <laughs> I, I hope it's a word we can pronounce on the air. <laughs> I hope so, too. Maybe we'll get lucky and they'll just adopt snow. That would be, that would be good. At least 60 people are dead as some of the worst storms in recent memory slammed into Western Europe. Spain, France, Germany, and Switzerland were all ravaged by winds, some of them up to 118 miles an hour. In the Landis Forest in France, as many as 50% of the trees were blown down. 
Mark, this storm appears to be the equivalent of, say, a Category 2 hurricane, and it's it's not that uncommon over there to get those as they just run over the open fetch of the eastern Atlantic. There's not much to stop them before they hit Western Europe. That's right, and this one in particular, uh, Paul, intensified. That is, the low deepened and the pressure gradient steepened in the eastern part of the Atlantic Ocean, just before it, it w- uh, crossed over and went into uh, southern Europe. But those winds, I understand that much of the tens, literally tens of millions of dollars in damage was inflicted by the winds from this storm. So it it must have cut a a terribly wide swath. It did indeed. And finally this week, some of the nation's busiest airports will soon begin testing experimental radar systems designed to track flocks of birds and help pilots avoid the type of collision believed to have crippled that U.S. Airways jet about two weeks ago. Air traffic controllers uh, could someday use this technology to delay takeoffs, reroute flights before they leave the ground, and perhaps even radio warnings to pilots to take evasive action. What do you think of this? Well, uh, you know, maybe it's about time. Uh, They've been employing a radar for a number of purposes over the years, uh, Paul. If we can detect uh, soybean aphids or potato leaf hoppers (laughs) on radar, why not birds? Why not deploy it to... uh, to look closely at birds. And, of course, if it helps alleviate this risk, uh, that's a huge step in the right direction. Well, changing bird migrations, stronger storms, and the extreme weather events in the news this week have all been forecast as a byproduct of climate change. This week, a new NOAA study grabbed headlines. Dr. Susan Solomon, a senior research scientist with NOAA, presented the study for the National Academy of Sciences. The study says that some of the climate changes we will experience over the next 1,000 years may soon be built into the system, even if we reduce or eliminate greenhouse gas emissions completely. Dr. Solomon headed the IPCC team that shared the Nobel Peace Prize with former Vice President Al Gore, and I had the pleasure of speaking with her earlier today from near Washington, D.C., and I asked her... With her paper this week drawing a lot of headlines, what's the biggest headline we should take away from this new study? I think the, the, the biggest headline is that the climate change problem as far as carbon dioxide is concerned is probably more like nuclear waste than it is like acid rain or haze. You know, In the case of acid rain or haze, you could stop emitting the stuff and you could expect to see things get better right away. In this case, After you stop emitting, you're still going to have to live with the problem for a long time, more than a 1,000 years. But I want to emphasize that that doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do. Of course, it emphasizes the decision of how much more carbon dioxide we put into the atmosphere is all the more important. And let's talk about that a little bit. We're at 385 parts per million right now of global atmospheric CO2. What climate change effects are already built in now, and and where are we headed as those levels increase in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, there are a lot of things that can be talked about. There are a lot of things that are possible. In our paper, we actually tried to focus on the things where we think you, you can have the highest confidence. So we focused in on just a couple of effects. And we looked at those things where we already see evidence for changes. We already see evidence that human activities are contributing to the observed changes. And we understand the physics of what's going on. And the models all agree on the outcome. 
And if you put all that together, there's a couple of things you can look at. There's a couple of things we did look at. You could look at more. But we looked at uh, irreversible changes in rainfall in certain regions. We can't uh, forecast the changes in rainfall everywhere. But particularly in the, the dry subtropical regions, the, the places from about, say, 10 degrees north to, to 30 degrees north, places like the American Southwest and Mexico, uh, the, the Mediterranean Basin, um, parts of Australia, those places are already dry and they're very likely to get drier yet. So as we go, say, from something like what we have today, 385 parts per million of CO2, mm -hmm. if we were to go up to something like 450, you should expect to see, according to the best understanding, about 10% less rainfall in southern Europe and northern Africa. 10% might not sound like a lot, but actually it's about the same as what caused the Dust Bowl in uh, the U.S. Midwest in the 30s. So 10% change in rainfall is a lot. Similar types of numbers, 10% change in rainfall, say, in, in, in Texas and Mexico, are likely to start hitting when we get up to maybe 550, 600 parts per million of CO2. So that's the kind of, uh, of issue that we looked at. Susan, we've had the 10 warmest years globally since 1997, and it seems statistically we are long overdue for a year cooler than the 20th century global average. Now, we're off to a bit of a chilly start, at least in much of the U.S. in 2009. Would, would it surprise you if 2009 turns out to be cooler than average? Yes, it would surprise me uh, if it was cooler than the 20th century average or cooler than the early part of the 20th century. I think this is something that's very confusing to people. Um, you know, what we've got is temperatures are going uh, up very slowly over the, the, the course of of something like a 50-year time scale, um, there's still going to be ups and downs on that, and mm -hmm. particularly those related to, say, the La Nina or the El Nino events in the, in the Pacific Ocean. Right now we're in a cold La Nina phase. So that makes things a little cooler than they would otherwise be for a little while until you hit the next El Nino. Um, and we shouldn't be confused by those ups and downs. It's not That's weather. It's not climate. And in the same way, when we have, you know, a major um, uh, warm event associated with the next El Nino, I, I don't think anyone should call that evidence of global warming. You've got to look at the long-term average, you know, the average over something like 10 years. And as you say, it's uh, the, the last uh, years have been really remarkably warm. I would be very surprised if even with a major La Nina, uh, it would take uh, – something like an enormous volcano to drive 2009 down to being colder than the average for the early part of the 20th century. And as you point out, we're constantly trying to make that same point to our listeners. Uh, one year does not a trend make, and one year is weather and, and not necessarily long-term climate. It's, it's just remarkable to me that statistically we've put these 10 warmest years together. It, statistically, you would have expected that at least some of these years would have been below the 20th century global average. I think that, that speaks a lot to the work you're doing. Still, Dr. Solomon, there are critics who might look at your study and say, see, it's too late to do anything about climate change anyway. What will your advice be to policymakers uh, as you speak with them about this study? Well, you're right. It's too late to do anything about what we've already put in, uh, except pray for a geoengineering miracle solution that might be able to suck the carbon out of the air. And I'm not saying that's impossible. But we don't have it in hand yet. The key point is 
we have to decide how much more carbon dioxide we want to put in, knowing that it will live and, and, and affect the atmosphere for a thousand years. So our choice really is our future emission. And to me, the fact that what we're doing is is irreversible is all the more reason to think carefully about how much more we want to do. Slowing it down, for example, would give you more time to look for solutions. Dr. Solomon, it's great insight. Uh, thanks for your work this week, and thanks for sharing your new research with us today. Thank you very much. Well, Mark, pretty interesting stuff. Uh, nice to be able to talk to somebody who's really at the forefront of climate research. What, what was your take on her discussion today? Yeah, it was good to hear Susan's voice again. That's the second time we've had her on jet streaming in recent months. Um, I think uh, one one thing that we sh- should all uh, contemplate of a serious note, Paul, is uh, her uh, suggested implications for the change in the precipitation regime and that a change, a reduction, if you will, of a factor of 10% is still very significant. It still relates to uh, historical uh, traumatic episodes like the 1930s that she referred to. But when you superimpose on that this character change in precipitation, that it's becoming dominantly convective and dominantly more variable spatially, that compounds the problem even more. And then considering that population centers, large population centers, are in areas that are already taxed or stressed for fresh water supply, we really have to give water and water supply and water quality and water quantity some very, very careful considerations for the future. And I think your point about convective versus stratiform rain is a, is an important one because uh, you work a lot, of course, with agricultural folks here. There's nothing more beneficial than a nice widespread stratiform rain, a, a rain that falls over a large spatial area during the growing season. Uh, it, it can be quite unsettling to the crop picture if we only get convective rains during the summer. You bet. You bet it can. And uh, we all know what impact. I mean, literally a single rainfall in the growing season of the northern hemisphere can make or break the bottom line for a farmer. So it is absolutely important to understand what's going on hydrologically with this uh, climate change in terms of hydrologic cycle. And I also love her point about uh, the uh, the rainfall focus versus just temperature. Climate change is not just temperature. It's not just global warming. It's these uh, distributions of rainfall and those changes that I think will uh, are very important for us to look at as we head through the next uh, several decades. What does it look like where you work? Now picture yourself high on the summit of a Colorado mountain. Ah, fresh air, snow-capped peaks, and a view that stretches as far as the eye can see. Sounds like vacation, right? Well, actually, it's the office for Dr. Gannette Holler. She directs the Storm Peak Laboratory on Mount Werner, high above Steamboat, Colorado, and she joins us from 10,500 feet today. Dr. Holler, welcome to Jetstreaming. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Okay, we are suckers for a good mountain scene. Give us the visual of what it looks like at the Storm Peak Weather Lab. 
sure. Well, right now we're in cloud, so um, I don't see a whole lot at my window, and it is just dumping snow right now. <laughs> it's well, coming down really, really heavy. That's got to be beautiful in its own right, and I'm sure the skiers are happy about that. Tell us what the principal types of research uh, are that go on up there at the lab. Sure. Um, we measure cloud properties, so we measure um, the size of cloud particles. Um, we also measure aerosols or any type of particle in the air. We measure their size, their number, their composition, their chemical composition, and um, all of this is to get better understanding of our atmosphere in general. Uh, Mark Seeley here. I wanted to ask, um, can you describe for us, or maybe this is not possible to do in general terms, but is there a seasonality to some of these particles that reside in clouds? Is there a distinct seasonality to it? Um, that reside in clouds specifically, or just particles in general? Well, uh, I guess particles in general, although I was thinking particularly of the ones that form the condensation nuclei. Right, right. So um, at, at our lab, we see a little bit of a seasonality, that we see a higher concentration of particles in the summertime than we do in the winter. And, of course, that's primarily due, we think, to biomass burning in the region, wildfires and such. Um, and then as far as the, the particles that form clouds, um, we don't see a whole lot of seasonality in that um, but it, it just, yeah, that's kind of the short answer. We don't see a whole lot of seasonality. I mean, you have a lot of different types of particles that form cloud, for example, sea salt, et cetera, and, um, and dust form ice nuclei. Um, but we don't, we don't see a big seasonality change. Dr. Haller, I know there are only a limited number of these high-altitude uh, research facilities around the planet. What advantages does the location of uh, the Storm Peak Weather Lab provide for this kind of atmospheric research? Sure. Well, we're, um, like you said, at 10,500 feet, so we're high above um, local pollution sources. So we really can see long-range transport. So a lot of our work recently has been looking at um, air masses coming from Asia to the United States. Um, we also are in cloud about 25% of the time, so it allows us to study clouds over long periods of time. Um, other studies typically use aircraft to study clouds, and we definitely get a longer time series by just sitting in the cloud day after day looking at the particles. How about, uh, is, is there any, uh, are you studying any facets of uh, atmospheric interactions with land surface at high altitude? In other words, is there anything related to the land surface at high altitudes that you're looking at in particular? Just a little bit. We're not doing a whole lot of land surface, but we do have uh, carbon dioxide measurements at three locations, one very close to the treetop, one above the treetop, and one close to the ground. So we're looking at how changes in, changes in carbon dioxide associated with seasonal changes, um, snow cover, et cetera. I'm curious about your mentioning uh, air masses from Asia. Uh, I've seen a little bit of research and some amazing pictures of these huge dust clouds from the Gobi Desert that blow all the way across the Pacific. Is that something you can observe there at the weather lab? We do observe that, actually. We see those Asian dust storms as well as we um, measure uh, mercury to carbon monoxide ratios to understand um, the Asian air masses. So we actually have seen contributions of mercury as well as dust. And we see increases in our ozone as well. So those dust storms end up picking up a lot of industrial pollution and bringing that over with, with the dust.
What kind of weather extremes do you experience up there at the lab? I'm sure you get plenty of cold, high winds. Uh, how, how is the lab anchored to the mountain? And by the way, I have been there. It's been about, oh, maybe 13 years. But uh, tell us a little bit about how you survive the elements up there. Sure. Um, well, we are very fortunate to be on the, the ski area power grid. So we very, we almost never lose power and we never lose it in the wintertime. So we're very fortunate for that. Um, so we stay warm. Uh, the uh, extremes is, let's see, we had 90 mile an hour winds last year. We uh, had negative 40 not that long ago. Um, it's, it's extremely cold and extremely windy. Uh, and everything, the building was very well designed, to be honest. It's um, got a large flat roof, um, and it, it really handles the wind well. So it's built into the mountain in a way. Colorado's noted for its uh, incidence of extreme weather, particularly in the summer with thunderstorms and such. I was wondering, at that high altitude, have you uh, experienced some severe thunderstorms at that altitude, particularly in terms of uh, cloud-to-ground lightning? We have, actually. Um, and in fact, we're still recovering from a lightning strike that actually hit one of our MET towers, our meteorological towers, and ricocheted to the other tower, which is kind of impressive, then went ahead and came through a window and threw an instrument at the lab. It was the most amazing thing. I wasn't there at the time, but we can track where... Um, the lightning went by the fact we all these instruments failed and burned, and we're still recovering from that. And that was last fall. Uh, we have crazy thunderstorms, just um, amazing amounts of rain very quickly, and very intense lightning storms. Well, Dr. Haller, for a bunch of weather geeks like us, this sounds like a really cool place to go to work yeah. every day. And we thank you so much for taking us to the top of your mountain today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, speaking of thunderstorms, uh, that's our website of the week queue here on Jet Streaming. And uh, I thought I'd take us to the Storm Peak Weather Lab we were just visiting with Dr. Haller. Their website is really pretty cool, and it's got some great pictures of the environment. So if we didn't paint a good enough picture for you here, go check it out yourself. It's uh, stormpeak.dri, that stands for Desert Research Institute.edu. And of course, as always, you can search for the Storm Peak Weather Lab around Steamboat Springs and find it. Uh, they do some pretty interesting stuff up there, don't they, Mark? Yes, it sounds very exciting. Uh, I, I need to get out there and visit. I'm envious of you for having been out there for a visit. It's amazing. And you actually take the, the ski lift up to the top, and you have to ski all the way down the mountain. I was very uh, upset that we had to do that, but it was just <laughs> the best two hours of my life. Let's put it that way. Mark, uh, weather word of the week, when in push comes to shove, you're the guy for that. What do you have this week, Mark? <laughs> well, speaking of shove, uh, uh, yes, in, in the weather business and uh, particularly among uh, people that study uh, lake ice and sea ice, uh, we use the term ice shove. Now, that's S-H-O-V-E. Now, that's from the Middle English uh, verb shoven, which means to push, but uh, in this context, Paul, it's used as a noun. And it refers to those slabs of ice that sometimes are pushed up on coastal shorelines. And uh, sometimes we see this as winter as starts to abate a little bit. Uh, thermal expansion of the ice occurs as the ice warms uh, late in the winter and early in the spring. Or sometimes wind events push the ice slabs up onto these uh, shorelines, and they can cause considerable damage along shorelines uh, 
when they're uh, large and, and, and thick. And we've been going through, the reason I brought this up, Paul, as many of our listeners in the Great Lakes area know, you know, we have been going through a colder-than-normal winter, and lake ice on these inland lakes is pretty substantial right now. It's not uncommon to have ice 18 to 22 inches thick right now. And uh, to me, we see pictures of this for in these, these parts, say Lake Malax, exactly. big enough to have these. I assume all the Great Lakes that can occur given the right wind conditions. It will be very interesting to watch what happens this spring. We have a little listener feedback. Thank you, Mark. Excellent word today. Um, right from our own backyard this week, our listener feedback, Gary Powell from St. Paul. Gary says, on January 24th in St. Paul, the temperature was below zero. In my backyard was a small flock of robins, about six. Also, there was at least one purple finch. Why are these birds migrating so early? Is it due to warm temperatures being so close to our region, such as the 60s Nebraska experienced a week or so back? And uh, Gary says, thank you. Well, here's my take on it, Mark. I know some robins do winter over in Minnesota, and some only migrate as far south as they need to. They change their diet in the winter from worms and bugs to seeds, berries, other edibles, and they're able to stay warm because of their high body temperatures. Is this your understanding as well in talking to local uh, bird folks about this? You know, uh, that sounds very plausible to me, Paul. It also sounds like it dovetails pretty well with, you'll recall we had Carol Henderson on jet streaming last year, the non-game wildlife specialist who's an absolute expert on birds. And I think that's uh, similar to what he said in terms of uh, these bird behaviors in the winter season. And uh, as, as far as I understand, that is absolutely true. It's possible these robins may have uh, even spent their summers in northern Minnesota, Canada, or right here in the Twin Cities. So thank you, Gary, for that. hope that helped answer your question. And you know, it's easy to get a hold of us here on Jet Streaming. Just go to minnesotapublicradio.org, choose Jet Streaming on programs, and fire off your question or comment. A full plate this week. Great show. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Paul. That puts a wrap on the last January edition of Jet Streaming. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please tell two of your weather-crazed, cabin-fever-afflicted friends about us, will you? For P. Ray Rudolph, the red-nosed producer, and for Jim Bickle and sound guy Randy Johnson, I'm Paul Hutner. Keep your ear tuned here to Jet Streaming, and keep your weather eye on the sky. Here comes the-